Hey everyone, welcome to part one of this two-part Betfolio podcast series sponsored in part by DECRA. In these podcasts, we'll be talking to Dr. Audrey Cook about two of the most challenging parts of managing Cushing's disease, how to diagnose it and how to talk to owners about it. Sometimes we get lucky and we're able to diagnose a dog with Cushing's disease quickly and relatively painlessly, but in other cases, getting to a diagnosis of Cushing's can be a long and winding journey and keeping pet owners on board through the process of getting a diagnosis can be equally challenging. We're so happy that Dr. Cook has agreed to come on our podcast and discuss her thought processes and communication strategies, which will hopefully make these cases easier for the rest of us as well. Dr. Cook is an Associate Professor of Small Animal Internal Medicine at Texas A&M. She obtained her veterinary degree at the University of Edinburgh in 1989. She achieved board certification with the American College of Veterinary Internal Med in 1994 and with the European College in 1996. But she didn't stop there. She became board certified in feline practice in 2013 and recently completed a post-grad certificate in veterinary education through the Royal Veterinary College in London. Dr. Cook owned a referral practice in Virginia for 10 years before joining the Texas A&M University faculty in 2007. She's currently co-chief of the medicine section where her professional interests include endoscopy, endocrinology, gastroenterology, and interventional radiology. It's a lot of ologies. All right, though, let's jump into it. Here's my interview with Dr. Cook. So thank you, Dr. Cook, for being here with us today. And helping talk us through getting to a diagnosis of Cushing's disease, which in a lot of cases can be difficult. So can you talk us through a little bit of your process when it comes to getting a diagnosis? So do you think for me, the decision to start the workup for Cushing's usually starts in the exam room. So 95% of the time, I'm going to pick up a chart, walk in the exam room, I'm going to hear something from an owner, an owner complaint. So it's going to be I can't stand the thirst, I can't stand the drinking, I can't stand the urinating in the house, my dog is stealing food from my kids, or I'm going to walk in the exam room, take a look at the dog and think, I think you have hyperadrenocorticism. And so it's going to be a question usually of I hear something from the owner or I see something when I look at the patient that makes me think about Cushing's. Sometimes I'm dealing with another disorder and I'm struggling, and then it dawns on me that maybe Cushing's is lurking behind. And so maybe 5% of the time, I have a diabetic that's that's insulin resistant, or I have a dog that's back in for a current neurotract infections. And then I stop and I think, I wonder if there's something behind that. And that's when I think about Cushing's. But 95% of the time, it is an exam room diagnosis. That makes sense, because it can kind of lurk behind things and be this really subtle thing. It doesn't always come out and smack you in the face and say, hey, this dog is Cushnoid, unless, of course, like you said, you walk in and you just see this poor little Cushnoid baby. So talking about what you would hear from the client in the exam room, what are some of the common client complaints that you hear in the exam room when you have a dog with Cushing's? So about 95% of dogs with Cushing's do have a dramatic change in thirst and urination. So polyuria, polydipsia is probably the most common reason that um, clients will will bring a dog in and Cushing's is the underlying process. The vast majority of dogs with Cushing's are also eating very well. Sometimes they're not. The vast majority of time they are. And so I expect them to be hungry dogs. Other things that clients sometimes notice are more subtle. And so some dogs will start to pant. And even if the room is cool and the dog isn't doing anything, they're panting. So some clients become very frustrated by that and they'll, they'll share that concern. And kind of going along with that is sometimes, and not dramatic again, but a subtle loss of exercise tolerance. And so Cushing or dogs aren't really lethargic. 
it's just you set off to take a walk and they've got a good attitude about it. It's just halfway down the block, they're kind of dragging behind you. Sometimes though, owners will attribute many of those changes to simply getting older. And so they'll look at their dog and they'll think, well, he's older, he's doing less. And so sometimes those changes can be subtle. If I've got an index of suspicion for Cushing's, I'm going to ask some very pointed questions about, can he jump on the sofa? Can he get in the truck? How's he doing a walk? I might ask those questions just to try and get more evidence that Cushing's is worth chasing. That's interesting that you note the panting because we, we see a lot of panting here in Florida. It's hot. And so I didn't really think about that until you just said it to maybe attribute the, the increased panting as a sign of Cushing's disease. Let's talk about the physical exam findings. What makes you look at a dog and say, mm, I think you have Cushing's? Well, when I think about Cushing's, I can think back, I'm old enough to think back to the kind of dogs we saw in the 80s with Cushing's, where often it was really, really dramatic. But now veterinarians are much more educated. Their index of suspicion, I think, is kind of activated a lot, a lot sooner. And so we don't tend to see your classic textbook Cushingoid dog. One of the things that I do look at if I'm suspicious of Cushing's is I take a very close assessment to their hair coat, because even if you've not lost your hair, so even if you haven't got the textbook truncal alopecia You've still got hair on your head and your, and your feet, but the rest of you is bald. Even if we haven't got a dog who's got to that point, we usually have a dog who has kind of hair coat. And so maybe it's subtly changed color. Maybe it's thinner. I'll often have a, have a dog stand up on its back legs. I'll have an assistant hold the dog up if the dog is small enough. And I'll look at their tummy because often the hair coat and skin changes are most obvious on the ventrum. And so I'm looking for thinning of the hair on the ventrum. I'm looking for loss of skin elasticity. So the skin becomes kind of wrinkly, crinkly skin, often you can see those subcutaneous blood vessels really clearly on the ventrum. So I'm going to pay very close attention to kind of skin and coat changes. We do tend to see a pot-bellied appearance too, because they lose abdominal musculature strength and the liver gets bigger and we have visceral adiposity. So there's more fat in the abdomen. And so I will tend to want to kind of look sideways at a patient and see what is the lowest part of them. In a healthy dog, the lowest part of a dog is the end of the sternum. And then the, the belly is going to tuck up. Even if we see a dog who's just fat, if you look carefully, often the lowest part of the dog is still actually the end of the sternum. So dogs who just simply get fat, they don't tend to get a pot belly. So if I look sideways and the lowest part of the dog actually is the abdomen, that's a really good sign for Cushing's. Often we'll see that they've lost musculature to the legs. It can be more obvious in the hind legs. We'll sometimes see a bit of a plantigrade stance because the ligaments are getting stretchy. And so we'll see a patient who is slightly sunken on the carpi and then slightly sunken on the tarsi, but overall kind of plantigrade, palmigrade stance. So I'll look carefully for that. And then we don't tend to see it very often in dogs with spontaneous Cushing's anymore because we do find these dogs much more quickly than we used to. But calcinosis cutis, that to me is essentially pathognomonic for Cushing's. There's some very, very exceptional circumstances where we see calcinosis cutis in dogs who don't have hyperadrenal corticism. But if I see a patient who's got that classic crusting eruption, usually along the dorsum and over pressure points, then that to me is, um, that's a very, very consistent flag that we have Cushing's. Sure, sure. But some of those other signs that you mentioned weren't ones that were really top of mind for me. I feel like you just gave me a whole lot more things to look for in the exam room when we have that suspicion. And as we're kind of talking about, some of these findings can be more on the subtle side. So if we're not cued in by history and physical exam, what kind of things should we be looking for on that routine lab work that we're running on our patients? Well, that's a great question. I do want to specifically talk about the issue of, um, of routine lab work, and we'll run through those changes. What's difficult is a lot of those changes that support an index of suspicion of Cushing's 
we tend to see in dogs who are older or obese. And so if I don't think about Cushing's and then I look at lab work and think, hmm, could this be Cushingoid? Oftentimes that dog does not have hyperadrenocorticism. So I use the lab work to support my gut feeling that this dog has Cushing's. And the things that I'm looking for are on the CBC, I'm expecting to see a stress leukogram. So we should have a modest neutrophilia. We should see a lymphopenia. We should have a robust hematocrit and a robust platelet count. In fact, some dogs with Cushing's, even though they look somewhat decrepit, have phenomenal hematocrits. So they've got the blood of an athlete, even though their body is getting very decrepit. And then they often have a platelet count that is uh, high end or above the end of the reference range. Those changes, though, are very, very nonspecific. On the chemistry panel, first thing I'll look for if I'm finding evidence that a patient has Cushing's is I'll look at the alkaline phosphatase activity because that is predictably going to be increased in dogs with Cushing's. I think in 30 years, I've seen maybe two dogs where my final diagnosis was hyperadrenocorticism, but yet they had a normal ALK-FOS activity. So for me, a normal ALK-FOS pretty much stops me in my tracks. I've got to have lots of other supportive evidence before I'll continue that hunt. We also expect to see a high cholesterol. It's not usually dramatic. It's often maybe 50% above the upper end of the reference range. Some dogs have a high phosphorus, which I think is not very common in Cushingoid dogs, but very useful clue in Cushingoid dogs. Because in the absence of renal disease, there's very few other differentials for a high phosphorus. But some dogs will have a high phosphorus, so that's a very useful finding. I will look carefully at um, things like their blood glucose, because often dogs with Cushing's have a blood sugar that is just at the high end of reference range. Shouldn't be over the diabetic threshold, or they are a diabetic as well. But often that blood glucose is a point or two above the reference range, or it's just hanging out at the high end of normal, and that can be a very useful clue. And then some dogs will have a lowish BUN. It's listed in the textbooks, but in my experience, that's not a very common finding. The urinalysis for me is an essential part of the workup. And I think if we're ever thinking, ooh, this dog might have Cushing's, we've really got to look at a urine before we consider doing any specific adrenal function testing. Because again, we're, we're looking for evidence to support that we're on the right track. And the UA has key things. We're looking for a dilute urine. So the vast majority of dogs with Cushing's have a urine that's less than 1025. Usually it's, um, it's actually much closer to 1010. And sometimes it's actually hyposthenuric, meaning the urine concentration is less than 1008. If you've got an old dog and their urine is less than 1008, Cushing's is actually the most likely explanation. And so knowing that urine specific gravity is, is really helpful. And I'm very reluctant to chase Cushing's if the urine is over 1025 specific gravity. And then proteinuria is pretty common. Dogs who have Cushing's often get changes in their glomeruli. They can get glomerulosclerosis. And so some degree of proteinuria is also expected and, and again, supports my index of suspicion that this dog may have Cushing's. So a lot of findings that kind of to take in conjunction with each other to, like you said, support our history and physical exam and that index of suspicion. So at this point, we've got our history, we've got our physical, we've got our lab work, all signs pointing to Cushing's. Now we get into the more specific adrenal function testing, and I know there's several options out there. So can you talk to us about your thoughts on these tests? It's a great topic to talk about. And what's difficult about adrenal function testing from the perspective of hyperadrenocorticism is that the tests we have are just not great tests. Some of the tests we use as veterinarians, like the SNAP test for heartworm disease, that is a phenomenal test. I mean, those tests work extremely well. The tests we use for Cushing's just aren't that good. They all have issues with sensitivity and or specificity. They all have false positives and false negatives. 
And so it's not unusual that I may, may run a test. It doesn't give me the answer I expected. And then I will say, well, test isn't perfect. And I'll pick a different test. When I think about which test is my standard, which one do I have the most confidence with of the choices that we've got? then the low-dose deck suppression test is my favorite. And most internists, I think, would say, on balance, I'd pick a low-dose deck suppression test over an ACTH-DIM test or a urine cortisol to creatinine ratio. Can you talk to us a little bit more specifically about why that low-dose dex test is the go-to? It does seem to be a bit more sensitive than the ACTH-DIM test and is certainly much more specific than the urine cortisol to creatinine ratio. There's also some other advantages to the low-dose dex suppression test. We do know that in dogs who have an underlying adrenal tumor, which isn't common, it's probably 10 to 15% of dogs with hypoadrenal corticism have a final diagnosis of an adrenal tumor. But the low-dose dex suppression test is a lot more reliable in those patients. Stim tests can really send you in the wrong direction in dogs who have an adrenal tumor. And so that's a big advantage to the low-dose dex suppression test. Depending on patient size, unfortunately, the, um, the reagents that we use for a stim test have become fairly pricey. And so it's often less expensive to do a low-dose dex suppression test. So that can be a significant advantage in a, a larger patient. And then if we are fortunate, it doesn't always happen, but if we're fortunate, our low-dose dex suppression test can also answer what would have been the next question on our diagnostic workup, which is, okay, this dog has Cushing's, is it pituitary dependent or is it an adrenal tumor? And sometimes a low-dose dex suppression test will go ahead and answer that second question for us, which is really helpful. And that kind of brings us around to the timing of the test, because of course we're taking samples at four hours post-dex and then eight hours. So can you talk to us a little bit about how to interpret those results at the different time frames? Absolutely. I think one of the things that was uh, suggested to me as a youngster, which has been my, that was my, gosh, this is the way to do it, is when you do a low-dose dex suppression test, the first thing to do is look at the eight-hour result. And so when you get your results through, don't look at anything, but the sample ID and figure out, okay, which is the eight-hour result? And then each lab has got its own reference range or should establish its own reference range. And most of us use a 1.4 micrograms per deciliter as kind of the line in the sand. And so the first thing we do is we look at the eight-hour value. If that eight-hour value is above 1.4 micrograms per deciliter, then that test result is consistent with the diagnosis of hyperadrenal corticism. If my eight-hour is below 1.4 or whatever your lab has specified as their cutoff, then that result is not consistent with a diagnosis of hyperadrenal corticism. But the key thing, I think, to avoid getting confused by low-dose dex, because it can be confusing, is first go to the eight-hour and then see, is that a yes, Cushing's, or a no, Cushing's, and then kind of regroup from that point. So if we're looking at the eight-hour post, and that's going to tell us, do we have Cushing's, do we not have Cushing's, what are we looking for with that four-hour result? So if the eight-hour result says, yes, this dog may well have Cushing's, then I go ahead and look at the four-hour. What I'm looking to see at the four-hour is, is there evidence of suppression at four hours? And again, we're going to define suppression as less than 1.4 or less than 50% of where you started. So essentially, when we're doing a low-dose dex suppression test, we're sending a message to the hypothalamus and the pituitary, and it's a polite, elegant message saying, hey guys, I'm giving you some dexamethasone today, so no need to make CRH and no need to make ACTH. And so if the system is healthy, the adrenal glands don't get any endogenous ACTH and they stop making cortisol. If we do a low-dose dex suppression test and the dog is still producing robust amounts of cortisol at, at the eight-hour mark and we look at the four-hour mark, if there was transient suppression, if somebody got the message at four hours, meaning 
cortisol did drop by more than 50% or it did fall below 1.4 or your labs cut off, then somebody got the message, the higher centers got the message and then kind of blew us off by the eight hour mark. And that result, that dip at four hours tells us this patient has pituitary dependent disease. If we don't see any suppression at the four hour mark, then we've learned nothing additional. It's probably still pituitary, could be an adrenal tumor. We've learned nothing. But suppression at four hours is a really useful piece of information because that tells us that this patient has pituitary-dependent disease. So ideally, if we can interpret the results correctly there, then we would get an answer of yes, Cushing's or no Cushing's, and then hopefully also get the information of is it adrenal-dependent or pituitary-dependent. It sounds like it makes sense of why it's the go-to test to initially diagnose Cushing's, but Let's talk real quick about some of the other testing, specifically the ACTH stim. Can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on that option? I do think generally the stim test is a bit less reliable than the low-dose dex suppression test, but it is a, a test I will do if my low-dose dex suppression test doesn't support my hypothesis, but I'm really sure the dog has Cushing's. I will turn around and say, okay, let's do a stim test. So I'll do it under those circumstances. I'll also do it if I have a dog that I don't want to keep in the hospital for eight hours because we do know that stress is going to impact the results of a low-dose dex suppression test. So if I have a patient who is very nervous, likely to spend the whole day digging in the cage, is going to break the skin on the top of his nose from trying to escape, spend the whole day panting and frantic, and likely the owner equally frantic knowing the dog is upset, um, then I don't do a low-dose dex suppression test because it's going to be miserable for all parties and stress potentially can impact those results. So that would be a patient where I may well go ahead and think, I'm just going to do the one-hour ACTH stim test and get this dog in and out of the hospital. If I strongly suspect the dog has an adrenal tumor, though, I know that ACTH stim test is often not a very useful test for those patients. And I worry about an adrenal tumor in big dogs with Cushing's. So if I've got a dog over 20 kilos who I think has Cushing's, I'm getting worried that dog could have an adrenal tumor. It's gone from being unlikely to about a 50-50 shot if the dog is big. And so I probably would then think I'm going to have to do a low-dose dex suppression test in that dog. We can definitely get false positives and false negatives there with both an ACTH DIM test and a low-dose dex suppression test. So, so neither is perfect. We can't completely hang our hat on either of those sets of test results. Sure. And then what about the um, cortisol to creatinine ratio? Any feelings on that one? So the, the urine cortisol to creatinine ratio is extremely sensitive, meaning it'll wave a red flag that says Cushing's very, very, very easily. Sadly, it's not very specific, meaning almost every dog who has a polyuric condition, no matter what it is, is vulnerable to a positive result on a UCCR. So we get tons and tons of false positives. So I tend to believe a no on that test. If the UCCR is not consistent with Cushing's, I'm very confident in that result. If the UCCR is positive for Cushing's, I don't have a lot of faith in that. There's a pretty good chance the dog has a number of other conditions and doesn't have Cushing's at all. And I certainly can't treat on the basis of a UCCR. So I, I tend to do that test under a small set of circumstances. So if I've seen a patient and we share lab work with the owners and the owner has seen that the dog has a high ALKFOS and I've said, well, he's old and slightly obese and I wouldn't worry about it. But goodness knows the owner gets onto Dr. Google and then contacts me and says, I think my dog has Cushing's. I don't think the dog has Cushing's. One of the tests I will do with that owner is say, okay, catch a urine sample. First thing in the morning on a couple of mornings, bring those urine samples in and we'll do this test for Cushing's. And if this test says no, we can be very sure he doesn't have Cushing's. And so that's a set of circumstances under which I do do a UCCR. I'm aiming to get a negative and I have tremendous faith in that negative. But that's about the only time that I'll run that test. 
Huh, interesting. I did know it was sensitive, but I didn't think about it in terms of ruling out Cushing's. That makes a lot of sense. Okay, so we've run our tests. We've got our diagnosis of Cushing's. Let's talk about differentiation, pituitary versus adrenal. Why is it important to differentiate between those two? Well, that is a good question. If an owner would not pursue an adrenalectomy, then to some extent, it really doesn't matter what kind of hyperadrenocorticism we're dealing with. The prognosis would be very different if we knew a dog had a malignant adrenal tumor and we left it in the dog, then the dog will probably die of the adrenal tumor. In that sense, I'd like to know what I'm dealing with. Um, Because if I found an adrenal tumor and it's operable, I would strongly encourage my clients to go for adrenalectomy if the dog was otherwise in a reasonably stable condition and could withstand a major surgery. So to me, it is sometimes a bit of an academic question. If I have a dog who's got, say, cardiac disease, pre-existing cardiac disease, or a client who financially is, is just not going to be able to go for referral for adrenalectomy, then it really doesn't matter to me what I'm dealing with. I'm not going to worry about differentiating. I'm going to go ahead and make a treatment plan because I'm going to manage the dog's clinical signs and make the dog happier and the owner happier. If it's a large dog, again, I do warn clients, there's a pretty good chance it's an adrenal tumor and we may lose our window for doing something if we don't differentiate pituitary from adrenal at this time. But if a client's not going to move forward with something aggressive, then I think it's okay to just say, it doesn't matter what kind it is, let's treat this dog medically. Absolutely. That makes sense if it's not going to change your plan. You mentioned earlier that the low-dose dex suppression test may help differentiate between pituitary versus adrenal. Can you remind us about that again? Yeah, so that's right. If we do a low-dose dex suppression test as far as part of our initial diagnostics and we see suppression at four hours, then we have managed to identify for sure that we have pituitary-dependent disease. Okay, that's right. And then what if you don't see suppression at four hours? How do we differentiate at that point? So in my practice, I will usually do an abdominal ultrasound. I say I will do, meaning I will have fabulous radiologists on incredible machines go ahead and do an ultrasound scan. So I recognize I am extremely fortunate um, to work with numerous very talented boarded radiologists. And so that's usually my go-to. It lets us um, look at the adrenal size, compare one versus the other. If there is evidence of a mass, we can get some idea about dimensions because that can be somewhat prognostic. Bigger tumors are more likely to be cancerous than, than smaller masses. We can also look for evidence of vascular invasion, and we can look for any evidence of metastatic disease. I don't think it's, um, it's absolutely essential. I think, again, if you've not got easy access to ultrasound, then I don't think it's a mandatory part of the workup. The other thing that I sometimes do, and that's usually if my ultrasound's a little bit equivocal or my patient has other things that are a little bit strange about it, um, but this is a test that uh, if you don't have easy access to good ultrasonography, is actually a very useful test to run. And that is to go ahead and measure endogenous ACTH. There are some little tricks about that because this hormone is extremely fragile. And so you need to contact your lab and find out if they want you to use a special tube that contains a preservative. Or if you're sending the sample direct to a reference lab that runs it, you need to very carefully follow their instructions. But generally, um, as a rule, I will chill my syringe chill the tube I'm putting the sample immediately into, stick everything in a bucket of ice, run with my hair on fire to find a centrifuge, stand by the centrifuge, stop it as soon as it's done, harvest my very, very precious EDTA plasma and put that into a chilled tube and then stick that straight into the freezer. And that gives me the best chances of getting a accurate response on what my endogenous ACTH really is. If I'm casual about how I handle that tube, then my endogenous ACTH is going to disappear and I'm going to get a result that's unreliable. 
So you do have to be careful about it. But it's usually a very nice way of differentiating the two. And if you haven't got good access to ultrasound, you can actually collect that sample and bank it and freeze it when you do your low-dose deck suppression test. So when you pull your baseline sample for your low-dose deck suppression test, just go ahead and, and get some extra blood and stick it in the freezer so you can measure endogenous ACTH later on if you needed to. And essentially, a very low endogenous ACTH supports an adrenal tumor. An endogenous ACTH that is nicely within the reference range or maybe even above the reference range, that will tell you that your patient has pituitary-dependent disease. So we go from our low-dose DEX test being that, you know, this nice, relaxed, okay, we'll draw blood and then we'll come get it again in four hours to run in with our hair on fire. But at least, like you said, we get an answer there at the end. Yes, yes. So it can be well worth strategizing to bank that sample. The dog hasn't got to come back and then you can answer that question if your low-dose DEX didn't tell you what kind of Cushing's you were dealing with. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Cook, this has been an amazing walkthrough of a workup for Cushing's disease from history, physical exam, lab work, adrenal function testing, and everything that goes into working up a Cushnoid patient. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to share with us? I would want to, um, to share that adrenal function testing can be tricky. And I think that it's not unusual that I get a case where I'm a little bit like, hmm, and I have to scratch my head and maybe talk to a colleague. So um, there's lots of resources out there. If, uh, if practitioners get a test result that seems strange, doesn't make any sense, then don't hesitate to call your lab or call a vet school and talk the case through with an internist. So never be uncomfortable asking for help because these tests can be a little bit tricky. Also bear in mind, there's the rare dog who can really throw you a curveball by having two conditions like, yes, it has an adrenal tumor, and oh, by the way, it has pituitary-dependent hyperadrenal cortisism. So there, there can be patients who give you very, very conflicting messages. And then also bear in mind that unbeknownst to you, a patient may be taking medications prescribed for another member of the household, or the owner is busy spraying its itchy spots with some nice steroid-containing spray they got when they were on vacation somewhere out of state that you don't know about. And so always bear in mind that some dogs that walk in the clinic with signs that suggest Cushing's, it may actually be, be cult iatrogenic disease. And so they got a shot of Depomedrol somewhere else, or they're using the ear cream that was prescribed for their neighbor's dog, and now they've made their dog Cushingoid. So just keep atrogenic in mind if you've got a patient that really doesn't make any sense. Sure, sure. That's great advice. Well, Dr. Cook, thank you so much for being with us today. I feel like I learned so much about working up Cushing's disease. I hope everybody else did too. Thank you very much. It was great to talk about it. All right, guys, I hope you enjoyed our interview and took away some good pointers on diagnosing Cushing's disease. I'd like to thank Dr. Cook for such a fantastic overview, and thank you to DECRA for sponsoring this event. If you'd like to find out more about this and other exciting podcasts, click on the Education tab on Vetfolio's portal. As always, we'd love to hear your input on this session, as well as ideas for topics you'd like to hear from us in the future. Feel free to reach out to me at dvm at vetfolio.com. You can also visit my Facebook page at Dr. Cassie DVM, and you can find me on LinkedIn. And remember, if one animal is better off because of you today, it's a great day.